Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, and Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell upon his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I have met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has graciously has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Father, we're thankful for your word and ask that you would guide us now, even as we study it, consider it. I trust you have much to teach us. And so we pray, as your, your servant did long ago, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It was in the year 325 B.C. that Alexander the Great, the famous Greek king, came upon an occasion when he began to weep, saying, there are no more worlds to conquer. Of course, he conquered many of them. Alexander the Great invaded Persia, did a great work there, and then he, he wanted uh, to head on to Egypt and to conquer Egypt, but in order to get from Persia to Egypt, he had to cross through Palestine. And so, for good measure, he stopped and paused to conquer the city-state of Tyre, um, he didn't want to leave an enemy at his backside as he marched down to Egypt. So he sieged the city of Tyre. Uh, he would eventually sack it completely, completely destroy the city. But it took him much longer than he thought. It actually took two years to siege this one city. And it was during that long siege that uh, Alexander the Great sent an attachment of his troops into Jerusalem and asked them for supplies for his army. They wanted weapons. They wanted supplies. They wanted food. It just so happened in the uh, mid uh, 300s BC that a man named Jadis, who was high priest in Jerusalem, and was in some way um, ruling over Jerusalem, reluctantly declined to support Alexander and his troops. For you see, Israel at this time had an alliance with King Darius of Persia, which was Alexander's enemy. And so uh, Jadis couldn't go against his ally and to help his enemy. Well, Alexander was irate at this refusal. And everyone expected him to attack Jerusalem once Tyre fell. And when Tyre did fall, Alexander did march his troops down into Jerusalem. Jadis, the high priest, was terrified. There was no defense whatsoever against this marching army. And yet the legend has it that one night God appeared to uh, uh, Jadis in a dream. And said to Jadis, don't fear Alexander and his army. Go out to meet him with all the people of the city dressed in white and all the priests in their uh, priestly garments. And so Alexander came, Jadis opened the, uh, ordered the city gates to Jerusalem to be open to receive the great Greek king, and all the city there in Jerusalem came out to, uh, to Alexander, dressed in white, and the, the priest out in front, and then out in the very front was Jadis in his, his full high priestly uh, uh, regala. And, and Alexander came upon him, riding in upon his horse. All the Greek soldiers expecting a slaughter amongst these unarmed enemies. They know Alexander has done this many times. And yet when Alexander saw the high priest, he dismounted his horse and lied down on the ground in front of him. His general would ask Alexander why the world's greatest conqueror would bow before a simple Jewish priest. Alexander would explain that before he left Greece, 
before he began his expedition to conquer the world, he had a vision of a man dressed in white with a breastplate upon his chest of 12 stones, an ephod, and a sash. And that man told Alexander in that vision he would indeed conquer the world. And seeing Jadis there totally stunned him. He took it as a blessing from the one true God, bowed in reverence, and turned his troops around, leaving Jerusalem unharmed, and marched off to Egypt. Well, here we are, aren't we, in Genesis 33. And another mighty army is marching upon Israel. Now, not, not the nation, Israel, but the man who was just last night renamed Israel. And at the head of the army is his brother Esau, who has now had 20 years to refine his hatred for his conniving, sneaky little brother. And in fact, that hatred is mutual, as you know. Uh, Jacob, of course, swindled Esau out of his birthright for a bowl of stew. He then went on to steal his blessing, lying to his blind old dad. And then Esau, we saw, responded with this, this gleeful dreaming of how he might murder his little brother. And, and, and Jacob... Uh, rather than repenting, rather than making things right with his estranged brother, rather than, than uh, b being courageous and going to him, he sneaks away like the coward that he is and runs off. Now, he's been gone for 20 years, and he's finally on his way home, and Esau is coming to meet him, to greet him, and he's coming with an army. And, and we find here Jacob, or if you will, Israel, likewise has no defense against this coming army. And yet before this dreaded encounter, he too has if you will, a vision. He, he wrestles. We saw this last week. He wrestles with God all night long. And you see, God there is dealing with Jacob before Jacob has to deal with Esau. And Jacob emerges from that, that night a new man. He's now named Israel. He's got a new name. One who wrestles with God. One who strives with God. One who clings with God. He's been blessed by God. He's finally found what he's been looking for his whole life. He emerges with a new limp, right, his hip is broken, he's been broken by God, he's been humbled, he's been blessed, he's utterly transformed. Though, he, by the way, he has a ways to go, we'll see this, but the man has a new nature and I believe a new confidence in God. And so he approaches his, his uh, irate brother, now, not, without, with, with, not with guile and deceit like Jacob normally would, but with trust in the Lord. God will protect me from this, this sinful man named Esau. Now, what we're going to do today, uh, uh, believe it or not, is we're going to consider two passages about Esau, okay? We're going to do Genesis 33 today and Genesis 36 today, okay? So that's exciting. You get two sermons today. I'm feeling very generous. I will only charge you for one, right? Black Friday comes to HBC early, okay? A two for one today. So get two sermons. Genesis 36, we're going to see God's grace to sinners. Genesis 33, God's grace between sinners and I will speak quickly. Okay. Here we are. So the, turn over to Genesis 36. We're going to start here. This is God's grace to sinners. Now, Genesis 36 is probably not your favorite chapter in Genesis, okay? All scripture is inspired by God. It's all his word. It's worthy of our study, the Bible tells us. But not, you know, not every constellation shines as brightly as others. And so this might be one of those that's a little dimmer, but it's certainly worth our consideration. We'll do so in the next 20 minutes or so. So this, by the way, if you're wondering, Genesis 36 is a transitional chapter. Uh, Genesis 35 is the, really kind of the end of Jacob as the main character in Genesis. We get to Genesis 37. We pivot now to Joseph. So in between 35 and 37, we kind of put the period after Esau. Whatever happened to Esau, that's what Genesis 36 is telling us. And so we begin in verse 1. Here we go. Uh, these are the generations of Esau, that is, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Ohola, let's try that again, Oholibama, Oholibama, how about that? Oholibama, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaoth, and Ada bore Esau, Eliphaz, Basemath bore Ruel, Oholibama uh, bore Jeus, Jalem, and Korah. Uh, these are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. And so already you now understand we're reading a genealogy, okay, this whole chapter is a lineage. So, uh, like I said, this is probably not your favorite chapter in Genesis. In fact, I think, you know, we're getting a little full here. I'm going to make some room for us, okay? So, come back next week. It'll be half full after this sermon, okay? Okay, so we're, we're yes, we study genealogies here at HBC. I find it interesting that God is going to devote an entire chapter of his scripture to Esau's descendants. I wonder if that tells us something about God. 
This, by the way, is the lineage of the unbelieving community. These are not believers. These are not God's people. And yet, uh, he's going to tell us about them. They will have contempt for God's covenant blessings. I think Esau's defining moment in his life was when he sold his, his, his birthright for a bowl of stew. He says, what do I care? I don't care about that. I don't care about the things of God. What I really want is I want something to eat. And so Esau, I think, represents the community of unbelievers. Jacob will represent the community of God's people. You, in other words, you have two brothers. You have a family divided. You have a Christian side. You have a non-Christian side. Right? Some of you know what that's like, to have a family divided like this. Well, they're living in that in Scripture. You notice in these five verses that uh, he has a bunch of wives. All of them are Canaanites or, or non-Israelites. They're not part of his people. He's married to non-believers. Now, we've already seen in the book of Genesis the great sin. Remember, grandfather Abraham wants to find a wife for his son Isaac, and he has his servant Eleazar. He says, you know, grab my inner thigh and swear you will not bring a Canaanite to this one. My son will not marry a Canaanite. Go back to my people, find one of my people, and bring a wife for him. He says, what if I can't find anybody? He says he'll remain single his entire life. He just can't marry a Canaanite. Right? God's people at this point are to be pure as he uh, defines them and, and works in them. And so Esau, here in open defiance, he marries a Hittite, a Hivite, an Ishmaelite, all Canaanites, uh, causing his mother great consternation, if you remember that. I will tell you, I think there's a, a truth here that uh, somebody's choice in marriage really shows you what they value. Right? It will, you, who you marry will set the course direction for your life. And I don't think Esau valued the promises of God, so he begins to assimilate with the Canaanites. Notice, moreover, he abandons the promised land. Verse 6, then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, and all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojourning could not support them because of the livestock, so Esau settled in the hill country of Sair. Esau is Edom. So he's leaving Canaan. He's got too many possessions to be near Jacob. So he takes the path of Lot, right? I'm going to leave the promised land because business is better outside the promised land. I have a lot of stuff. I have a big family. I don't really care about God, where he tells me to live. I'm going to do my own thing. Now he's going to pass that lineage on to his children and his grandchildren, which are listed here in verses 9 through 14. These are the generation of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Sair. These are the names of Esau's son, Eliphaz. I want you to note that name. We won't note them all. No Eliphaz. Talk about him in a moment. The son of Adah, the wife of Esau. Raul, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. The son of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gadam, and Canaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. You'll want to note that name. You notice he slows down, says, let me tell you where Amalek came. We'll talk about him in a moment. These are the sons of Adah, Esau's wives. These are the sons of Raul, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, Mizah. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. Okay, a lot of names, a lot of grandsons. I mentioned no Eliphaz. Eliphaz is interesting. He's from, uh, 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 you notice the connection with Eliphaz to Teman. You will read in the book of Job that Job had a counselor named Eliphaz the Temanite. And so many scholars believe the counselor to Job is Esau's son, Eliphaz. So that's just, that's just Bible trivia. That doesn't mean anything, but in case you want to know. All right, so he, he, all these names, lots of names. Uh, what's interesting to me is what the names mean. So he has all these sons, grandsons. The names mean perfume, ornaments, gold, okay? The names mean, he names, uh, there's a son named deer, gazelle, hawk, and mountain goat, okay? So you could tell what Esau's into, right? He's into women, wealth, and hunting, okay? Right? He names his kids after his toys. Like you're into cars, you got Corvette and Mustang over there and F-150 over there or whatever it is, right? right? So he's naming his kids after the things that he's interested in. You say, what about the names that give thanks to God? Well, there are 81 names in this chapter, believe it or not. Two have a connection to God. You see verse 10, Reul, means friend of God. Verse 14, Jeush, means God helps. Both names, we're told in verses 1 through 5, uh, are, are mentioned there as well. They're given to, to these boys while Esau is still living with his daddy in the promised land. Right? In other words, he's still going to church at that time. He's still in the covenant family. A couple of his boys have good Christian names. But as soon as he leaves home, you see, he could care less about the faith in which he was raised with. 
and, and, and out goes any reference to God whatsoever. I think many have walked that path. They, they, they're raised in a Christian home. They leave home. They forget about God. My parents take you to church every Sunday. Some of you are here because your parents took you to church. God forbid that one time you, know, you, you grow up 10, 15 years, you get married, and you say, what do I need in church? What do I need God anymore? This is what happened in Esau's life. Esau, listen, Esau is not a believer, not because he never heard the truth, but because he doesn't care. He doesn't care about the truth. And I, I just wonder if there's anybody like that. You're not a follower of Christ, not because you haven't believed, uh, heard the truth, but because you simply don't care. You'd rather go hunting. You'd rather go find a girl. You'd rather make money. You'd rather play video games, right? You'd rather uh, focus on your job, polish your car, go on vacation. And when it comes to God, if you're honest, you say, yeah, I, I, I've heard the truth. I just don't really care about it. That's Esau. And yet what's amazing to me is that God blesses him nevertheless. God gives grace to sinners. And you see it in the fact that God makes this man into a nation. We keep seeing Esau's Edom. That's the nation in which he'll, he'll create. In fact, you notice all the chiefs that he has. Look in verse 15. These are the chiefs of the son of Esau, the son of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs, Temin, Omar, Zepho, Canaz, Korah, Gadam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's son, the chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, Mizah. These are the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, uh, Esau's wife, the chiefs, Jeush, Jalem, Korah. These are the chiefs born to Aholibamah, the daughter of Ana, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau. That is Edom. And these are their chiefs. So he's got, well, he's got, who's he coming from? He's got chiefs coming from his lineage. I don't know, you like chiefs? You want some more chiefs? Here we go, verse 40. These are the names of the chiefs according to Esau, according to their clan, their dwelling place by their names. The chief Timnah, Alva, Jepheth, Aholibama, Ella, Pinan, Canaz, Temin, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom. That is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Okay, so what, what we're seeing here is that this man is going to go on and his lineage will become a nation. He will create the, the nation of Edom. And sometimes Edom and Sa'i are used interchangeably here. And, and what that tells us is that God is faithful to his promises even to people who hate him. Because I will tell you, when Rebecca, his mama, was pregnant, remember, she couldn't get pregnant, she got pregnant, was a miracle. That miracle turned into a nightmare because her belly began to erupt as two boys began. She thought she had one boy, there's two boys in there, and they were fighting even before they were born. And God comes to her and tells Rebecca, he says to her, two nations are in your womb. Two nations. Israel and eventually Edom. God says, I'll, I'll even keep my word to those who despise me. Two nations. He has all these chiefs that come from him. For good measure, he has kings. Sorry, a little bit more. Verse 31. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bala, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom. The, city of, uh, the name of his city is Dinhabah. Bala died, and jo, uh, Jobab, the son of Zerah, of Basra reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Hushan of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Hushan died, and Hadad, the son of Badad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place. The name of his city is Abith. Hadad died, and Shamlah of Masrachah reigned in his place. Shamlah died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Baal Hanan the son of Akbor reigned in his place. Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place. The name of his city is Pau. His wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matrid, the daughter of Mezahab. Okay, and so what, what, I just want you to notice there's a lot of names here, obviously, but there's now kings. There's royalty that's coming. And, and we even mentioned this is before Israel had any king at all, right? That, uh, they, all these kings emerged from him. He is a lineage of royalty. Now I got one more paragraph, so hold on, we're almost done here, okay? And we find in verse 20 through 30 um, a lineage of kings who were in this land before Esau ever showed up. And so look, these are the sons of Seir, the, Hor the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the son of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Heman. And Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Avlan, Manahath, 
Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Ai, and Ana. And he, he is the Ana who found the hot springs in the wilderness. There you got a nice little note. As he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Ana, Dishon, and Aholibama, the daughter of Ana. And these are the sons of Dishon, Hemdam, Eshban, Ithran, and Sharon. These are the sons of Ezar, Bilhan, Zavan, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aaron. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs of Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ana, Dishon, Ezer, Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. Now, what, what he's telling, these are, these are not, those are not descendants of, of, of Esau. They are the kings that were living in this land when Esau came and conquered them. You notice, you've heard these names, though. They will become his family. These are the in-laws of Esau. So he's, in other words, he's, He's, he's intermarrying with the people in which he's conquering and therefore will lose his identity as one who belongs to God. You, you know, I don't know if you saw down in verse, what is it, 38? He has a descendant named Baal Hadad, right? Which means Baal, that's the false god, Baal. Baal is gracious, right? That's not a name you want to give your kid, okay? And he ends up, his people end up worshiping idols, they end up worshiping false gods. I think there's somewhat of a warning to us. Again, this man was raised in a Christian home. Hebrews 2 says we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Listen, don't presume upon your faith. You've got to tie yourself to Christ. Bind yourself to the Lord and his people, or there will be a temptation for you to drift out to sea. And what Esau tells us, and then unless we're actively living our faith, our culture is going to pull us. And I think Esau is that example, right? He didn't set out to leave a lineage of pagans. He just left hope thinking about, you know, I just want to find a girl and find a gazelle. That's what I want to live for, right? And then business began to dominate his life. And God moves to the background. And the result is he is an ungodly man with an ungodly lineage. I mentioned one of his grandsons was named Amalek. You see that in verse 12. Uh, Amalek would become the father of the Amalekites, one of the most cursed enemies of God's people. Those are the people that King Saul was told to annihilate. He refused to do so. The fact that he refused to do so meant they continued to exist, and so they would come up again in the book of Herod when Haman tries to kill all the Jews, Haman the Amalekite. And, and then, of course, we, we don't stop there. We get to the New Testament, and there's a man sitting upon the throne in Jerusalem who tries to kill Jesus and is willing to slaughter boys, uh, little baby boys, in order to do so. That's Herod the Amalekite. That's the descendants of Esau. Esau couldn't see that coming. His family at the core ended up being opposed to God. Now what's astonishing to me is that God blesses him anyways. He's rich. He has to move. He's fruitful. He's got babies everywhere. He's got chiefs and kings. He's, I mean, they even have a hot spring. Meanwhile, what's Jacob doing? Well, just look over in chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the, in the land of his father's sojourning in the land of Canaan. So Jacob, meanwhile, is a pilgrim, a sojourner. He, he has no kings. He doesn't even have a home. And eventually his family is going to move to Egypt to, to avoid starving to death and uh, be enslaved there Why uh, Esau makes it rich. And all his people do great and wonderful. I don't know. You ever wonder, why are God's people struggling? Why, why does the unbelieving population seem to prosper? Why are the wicked rich? Why, why do they run the government? Why do they control the levers of popular culture? You ever frustrated and say, well, hey, Christians shouldn't, should, should be in power? Christians should run the society? Christians should be the influencers in our land? So why, why would God do this? These people don't worship God. They don't, they don't, they're not steward their lives and their money for God. They only live for themselves. Why does God allow these people to do so well? And I think there's a number of answers that the Bible gives us, but let me just give you one. It's a, a theological word called common grace. That God is gracious to unbelievers. His grace is common. Now, this is not saving grace. This is not the grace by which we are saved, right? But God blesses people who don't deserve it. And our Lord Jesus would tell us in Matthew 5, God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So you have non-believing people who deserves God's wrath and what do they get in this life? Rather than wrath, they get grace. They enjoy life. They get rich. They fall in love. They have babies. They eat good food. They get hugs and kisses from little ones, right? This is all God's grace to them. You say, why does God allow this? Because he's gracious. 
Right? Listen, if you were God, you would not give gifts to your enemies. Would you? I mean, I, I, would you lavish gifts on people who ignore you and just continue to bless people who hate you? Because so I think, like, we can't even drive in traffic without being red-faced, right? God is so good to those who hate him. The Bible tells us why in the book of Romans that God's kindness leads us to repentance. That's the goal, at least. It does, doesn't always get to that destination, but that's the goal. God is good to, to everyone upon this world. Someone once wrote, God is good to everyone, and only a handful of people ever say thanks. I pray that you would be amongst that handful. I tell you every once in a while, let me do so one more time, that every day is like Christmas morning. Now, Christmas coming up, just kind of get you ready for Christmas, okay? You wake up every day with a house full of presents. You, you, you are opening presents all day long. You, you got out of a warm bed this morning, didn't you? You walked to a place called a bathroom in your house, and you turn on a faucet, and water came out of that. You have indoor plumbing. You took a hot shower this morning. You, you have a toothbrush. That's a gift from God. You have toothpaste. That's a gift from God. You have teeth, most of you. That's a gift of God, right? You, you, you put on nice clothes this morning. Maybe you sat in a comfortable chair. And by the grace of God, you drink a cup of coffee, right? That is God's gift to you, right? And seven months of the year, you sit in that chair with that cup of coffee, and you could read a baseball box score, okay? That's God's gift, right? You could even do it on your phone, which is amazing, also God's gift. And you have a mind to understand it and a heart to rejoice in baseball. That is also God's gift, right? You have people in your life that you love. You have a spouse. You have children. You have pictures on the walls. You have eyes to see them and a mind to comprehend them. That's all God's gift. You walked out of doors this morning, and the air was fresh and clean. That's God's gift. The sun is shining, a gift from God. Birds are singing. Leaves are falling, right? You got in a car and drove here. I'm telling you, it's all God's gift. We go over and over and over. You are opening presents every day, present after present after present after present after present. And you would think that eventually the people in this world would, would stop and ask this question, who keeps giving me all these presents? Maybe I should say thank you. No, we just open them, enjoy them, complain a little bit about them because they're all scattered around the house. And the world doesn't stop to build an altar. They don't stop to make a memorial. They don't stop to praise God for all the countless gifts. They don't bother to gather with God's people and say, we just need to praise you for what you've done to us. Everyone receives countless gifts from God every day. It is the Christians who are the only ones who know where they came from. And so we should be quick to thank God for it. We should be quick to say, God, I'm sorry for all that I've taken. And when I don't say thanks, please forgive me. We wish Esau would have done that. God gave him so much. There seems to be no indication that he ever said, God, will you forgive me? His sin would separate him from God. And by the way, that's not all that sin does. It also separates us from other people. Sin will divide us, and occasionally God gives us grace to have an opportunity to restore those relationships. So that restoration between two estranged people, the biblical word we use is reconciliation. And of course, we know that both Jacob and Esau are estranged. And here in chapter 33, they give us a picture of what reconciliation looks like. So they come into this chapter unreconciled. And I want you to watch how Jacob seeks to restore that relationship as we now think about sermon number two, grace between sinners. How God is going to be gracious to two men who are estranged as we see a case study on reconciliation. Now, this is not a, 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 a thesis on reconciliation. We don't learn everything about it, but we see some principles here that might be helpful for us. And so see, first of all, that reconciliation requires wisdom. So I'm back here in chapter 33, returning to our story. And Jacob lifted his, up his eyes and looked, here's verse 1, and behold, Esau was coming with 400 men with him. Now, I, I remind you, last time they were to get with together, Esau wanted to kill him. Now they're meeting for the first time after that event. Esau's coming, and he's coming with 400 buddies. That's a lot of buddies. Okay, I don't even know, I don't have, I don't even know 400 men. He finds them, brings them. And what is he going to do? He's going to divide his family into groupings. We saw this a couple weeks ago, didn't we? I read on in verse 1. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. Those are his two girlfriends, right? Zilha and Bilha. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, right? She got uh, her seven kids, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. Okay, so he's dividing them all up. And we saw from chapter 32, the, the, the idea is if Esau comes and attacks... He could slaughter part of my family, but the other family could flee. 
right? In other words, this, at this point is incredibly tense in this story, right? If, if you hadn't read the Bible, don't know what's going to happen. This would be like, what's, are they going to get killed? Are they going to get slaughtered? And we see uh, Jacob begin to plan. I need to strategize. I need to think. I trust God, but I, 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 I'm, I'm going to have a plan as well. We see faith and wisdom go hand in hand. Esau is a hot-tempered man. And Jacob says, I need to have a plan to navigate this, a plan to see the most people I can survive. And so when you, when you seek reconciliation, I think this is just a simple principle to be wise. I think we see wisdom, right? The last time you, you met with somebody, he was trying to kill you, right? You might want to meet in a coffee shop, okay? Right? You might want to bring help. You might want to bring counsel. Think it through. How, what can I do best accomplish this reconciliation? I think we see some of Jacob's wisdom. Of course, we know we see a new man in Jacob. I, you remember when J- Jacob's already divided his family the night before. Look back on chapter 32, verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and 11 children, and crossed the fort of Jabok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had, and Jacob was left alone. So he sent his family ahead of him, and he stayed back on the other side of the river. But then after wrestling with God all night, submitting to God, having his new confidence in God... Now, notice he's divided his family, but look in verse 3 of our text. He himself went on before them, right? So he marches out. He's no longer the coward. He's leading his home. This crippled man, exhausted through his sleepless night of combat, now he's facing this new adversary, his brother, with courage, not using his family as a shield anymore, and he stands between Esau and his divided family. As we see, secondly, reconciliation requires humility. So we look in verse 3, he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. The word bow here is not simply a dipping of the head, it is to lie prostrate. This is what you do when you meet a king, right? And and you would lie down in front of him. And, And so Jacob, here comes Esau, and Jacob walks a few steps and lies down on the ground. And then gets back up. Walks a few more steps, limps a few more steps, I should say, and then bows down. I mean, this would be a, can you imagine this scene? So there's, you know, Esau, wild and hairy and dirty, right? He's sitting on top of his Arabian charger. He's got 400 men uh, behind him. And, and here comes his limping brother, like bobbing like a cork on the ocean, up and down, up and down. And he got all the wives and the children and the servants and the animals kind of gazing on in fear. And Jacob just bows to him and advances, bows and advances. Now this is, this is ironic if we're putting the whole story together because Jacob, remember, he stole his father's blessing. The blessing that should go to Esau, Jacob took for himself. Do you remember what that blessing was? That his father Isaac said to him, you will be lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow to you. Now isn't that interesting? Because it's Jacob, not Esau, Who's bowing? It's Jacob, not Esau, who is calling the other my Lord. You'll see that over and over again. I think what's happening here is Jacob is restoring to Esau the honor that he stole. The ones who should bow should be me. I stole that from you. I'm returning it to you. You should be the Lord. You were the firstborn. I'm returning that to you. I think you see an incredible humility here. And I will tell you, if, if if you are unreconciled with somebody... You can't come at them with self-justification. You can't come at them with a contentious spirit. You need to come, if you want to reconcile, with humility and contrition. I think this is what Jacob's doing. I've sinned against you. I'm humbly seeking reconciliation. Right? I'm going to humble myself. Now, of course, humility is easier when the other guy has 400 armed men. Okay? That makes it a little easier. But nevertheless, he's humble. I think this is disarming. I think Esau's anger is cooled through this act. You ever come into the situation where you're angry, you're ready to argue, you're ready to let him have it, and they, they say, can I just begin and tell you what I did was wrong? And I know I hurt you, and I'm deeply sorry, and I'm just hoping that, that I could do something to re-earn your trust. I'm hoping that somehow we could talk this out and you can forgive me. Right? That cools you down, doesn't it? I mean, we read about that. That's... that's you're repaying evil with good, right? Listen, if you sinned against someone and that creates separation, you need to stop defending yourself and humbly confess. Now, uh, you might say, well, what, what about what they did? What they did is a thousand times worse than what I did. I would just tell you to leave that between them and God. 
you humbly confess what you've contributed. I, I've been blessed by this quote. I'm not sure where I got it, um, but I've held on to it for a while. If your goal is to be right, you will be a lonely person. I think you might even know some people who just want to be right and are very lonely. Well, third, notice reconciliation is wonderful. This is my favorite verse in all of these uh, passages. And verse 4 says, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. It's almost as if like Esau says, okay, no more bowing and no more scraping. And the, you know, the hairy man gets off his horse and he charges Jacob. Jacob, you think, would rise in fear. What's going to happen? But rather than plunging a knife into his chest, and, you know, big old Esau lifts him up off the ground, this big burly embrace, and they hug and they kiss. I mean, you notice all that's happening. He's running, falling on him. They're hugging each other. They're kissing each other. Look, they both begin to weep. Or, I mean, you could imagine the tears and the snot coming. And right, it's just this, this huge embrace after 20 years of bitterness just seems to be washed away. I just think this is a, so beautiful. I mean, the last time they were together, Esau was pleasing himself by these murderous fantasies. Right? And now he comes with these men, you at least expect a fist fight. And instead we get running and hugging and kissing and weeping. Right? You, you read that, and don't you expect Esau to say, go kill the fatted calf for my brother who has lost his come home. I mean, it's very similar language to Luke 15, isn't it? I find this utterly stunning. I mean, you, this is a beautiful picture of reconciliation. Some of you experience that. That child you haven't spoken to in years, and the last time you talked, that brother, that sister, last time you talked, there was a lot of yelling and door slamming, right? This is the day when you reach across that divide, and you embrace and forgive and cry and kiss. Reconciliation is so hard, but it is worth it. And these men hated each other. And you wonder, how's, how is this even happening? Because Esau comes with 400 men. That doesn't imply a peaceful intention, right? You don't come with 400 men if you're looking, you know, to, to have a picnic. So he comes to fight. What's changed? Well, we're not told. Something's happened from when Esau left, got his posse together, to the time where he meets Jacob. And we don't know what's happened. But I will remind you, back in chapter 32 and verse 11, the night before, Jacob did pray to God, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. And in some sense, it seems as if God has changed his heart. He rides out in rage to slaughter his brother, and when he meets him, instead of, uh, of rage, there's weeping and hugging. And I think Jacob's prayers prayed. God answered his prayer. I don't know if there's any feud in your life, any estrangement in your life. I just want you to see in this that God is able to soften hearts. I don't know how deep any divide might be in your life, but if God is able to bring these two boys together, surrounded by armed men and curious children, I think nothing is too hard for God. See, once these brothers dried their tears, the family is finally introduced. I know our time is running up. Re reconciliation requires help from others. Just look briefly, verse 5, and Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children. Who are these with you, Jacob said? The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, uh, that, that's uh, Zilhah and Bilhah, uh, and their children, and bowed down. Leah, likewise, with her children, uh, drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel uh, drew near, and they bowed down. I, I just want you to note the spouses are on board. They, they don't come and say, I'm not bowing to this guy. Who's this guy? They, they don't, the, Rachel doesn't show up and say, yeah, he's as ugly as you told me he was, right? I mean, these women, they're coming up. What are they doing? They're bowing. They're getting with a picture. The whole family is on board. There's no contentious spirit. There's no uh, snide comments. Uh, right? Jacob's leading now, and his wives are following. Next, reconciliation requires restitution. We've got two more points. Here we go. Verse 8, Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I have met? Jacob answered to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Remember, he sent those gifts, like gift after gift after gift to Esau. Right? And, so, and so he says, hey, what are, what are all these gifts for? And, and Jacob says, well, I want to find favor. I want to find your favor. I want to find grace with you. Well, so Esau says, I don't want him. Look at but Esau, verse 9, said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. 
But Jacob insists, verse 10, Jacob says, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Okay, and you see what uh, Jacob's doing is he is making restitution. I think your notes say substitution. It should say restitution. I think he's saying, listen, I cheated you. I stole from you. I took your blessing, and now I want to give it back to you. In fact, I want to give you my blessing. Verse 11, please accept my blessing that this is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Right? Please accept my blessing. He's restoring back to Esau. Notice Jacob finally is not a taker. He's a giver. He's no longer Jacob, the grasper. He's Israel. He's no longer the deceiver. He's the one who trusts in the Lord's promises. And I want you to understand, if you're, you need to be reconciled, there's going to be, you need to make restitution. Restitution, reconciliation, I think, requires restitution. You borrow a car, you wreck it, you have to make that right. You lie about uh, uh, someone to others, you need to go to those others and say, listen, what I told you was a lie, it was wrong, I shouldn't have done it, and it's not the truth. We need to make restitution. I feel like a lot of people want to be forgiven, but not a lot of people want to fix the, me the mess that they create. Jacob comes and says, Esau, I ripped you off. I need to make this right. And, and, and I, I think you see, there's a little pattern here. I think we see this. Sometimes when you seek to make restitution, the other person will say, hey, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. And you need to do what Jacob did. You need to push a little bit. Say, no, no, that's really kind, but I really want to make this right. I want you to have this. I want to do this. He says, no, no, I forgive you. Don't worry about it. You say, thank you. I appreciate your forgiveness. But as a follower of God, as a believer, I, I feel like I need to make this restitution. And so Jacob is pushing. No, take it, take it. He willingly gives because he has this new faith. And I think you hear his faith. He's, he's talking about God all along. He's like, I was, I was expecting God to kill me last night, right? And I was expecting you to kill me today. Both people have embraced me. I'm having a pretty good day. God has been really good to me. Let me be good to you. Right? There's God everywhere. The children are from God. Who are these kids? Oh, those, those are the ones God gave me. Uh, who are these wives? Those are the ones God gave me. What's this wealth? Well, that's what God has given me. My life, in other words, is a product not of my scheming, my grasping, my deceiving, but it is a product of the grace of God. And what a beautiful picture. We too should testify what God is doing in our life. Tell people how God is blessing us. Maybe even over lunch, you might even ask somebody, how has God provided for you this week in particular ways? Just give you an opportunity to say, I want to tell you what God is doing for me. Well, lastly, notice reconciliation doesn't supersede obedience. Doesn't, doesn't overcome obedience. Verse 12. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. Right? So let's, hey, let's go together. So Esau at this point is inviting Jacob now to come live with them. Like, Listen. Let's make up for lost time. You could live next door. We go in business together. We can merge our flocks together, right? We could unite our families. We could hang out all the time. There's a couple problems with that. The first is that God has summoned Jacob to the promised land. Esau is going to Sair. That's outside the promised land. And so he has a choice. I could go with my brother or I could obey God. So he's going to obey God. He's going to go into the promised land. I'll, I think there's another problem. That even though you're reconciled with somebody... It doesn't mean you're compatible with them. It doesn't mean that they're good for you. The Bible says in the book of, uh, was Paul, I think in 1 Corinthians, he says, what partnership can righteousness have with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? So just because these boys have reconciled doesn't mean they need to ride a tandem bike together, okay? okay? Doesn't mean they need to get matching t-shirts and live together. You can reconcile and still not be close to people. And that might be what God wants for you. In fact, notice Jacob's response. Very interesting, isn't it? Verse 13. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing, flo uh, nursing flocks and the herds are care for me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children in I until I come to my, uh, my Lord in Sair. So Jacob says, listen, you go on ahead, we'll catch up. And as soon as, you'll see this, as soon as Esau's out of sight, is he gone? They head the opposite direction. He says, I'm not going with that guy. Now, there's two ways to interpret this. One, this is vintage Jacob. Jacob's lying again. He should have been up front with Esau. Listen, 
I appreciate it. I can't go with you. I, God told me to go here. That's where I need to go. He should have trusted the Lord. Others think that this is an idiomatic way that Jacob is kind of being diplomatic. Right? That Esau can read between the lines. Like, listen, brother, you, you, you have an army. I have a bunch of kids. I'm not sure that. Right? You, you live a life of danger. I, 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 I like having kids. That's what I'm into. This is what's going on. I need to do what's best for my family. Maybe he's just being tactful here. Maybe he, it's a tactful way of saying, I, I don't think I could come with you. See, if, if you reconcile, let's say you reconcile with, with someone. Maybe, maybe you're estranged from your in-laws. You reconcile with them. They say, why don't you come over for Thanksgiving? You say, okay, that sounds great. And they say, oh, you can stay the whole week. Well, that may not be the best for your family, right? And you might find a polite way to say, no, I, I don't. I don't think that's going to work. Esau's going to try one more time, verse 15. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in your sight. He says, so listen, I'll, I'll, I'll leave some guys here. Uh, they could go with you. He says, don't worry about it. We're okay. Now, regardless of how you interpret, is Jacob being conniving? Is he being tactful? I don't know. Jacob's, it's the right decision not to go with Esau. Esau's not a believer. He doesn't want to get interconnected with him. It's best we have a little space. We can be reconciled. We can love each other. There can be no bitterness between us. But Jacob's going to follow the Lord. You can be at peace and be separate from others. And they go their separate ways there in verse 16. So Esau returned that day on his way to Sair, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. There he named the place. The name of the place is uh, Succoth. Now, I'll tell you, just, just an aside, Succoth is a terrible name for a town, okay? Right? I'm from Succoth, right? We're Succoth. In fact, it's interesting. You see a little footnote down uh, there? Uh, if you look down, you see Succoth means Yankees. So Yankees Succoth, evidently, okay? Um, so J Jacob, J Jacob uh, goes back to the promised land. He's finally there. He's home after 20 years, okay? Uh, He's at the same place where Abraham first came into the promised land and built the altar in Genesis chapter 12. When this whole thing started, Grandpa Abraham was here. And Jacob is continuing the messianic line. He's following Grandpa. And notice what he says in verse 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, right, uh, which is in the land of Canaan on his way to, uh, from Padam Haran. And he camped before the city. So he's made it, made it to uh, uh, Shechem. And you notice he says, he made it there safely, safely. I mean, <laughs> this is a, quite a journey, right? He, he almost got killed by, you know, Grandpa Laban and his army. And then he almost got killed by God in the middle of the night. And then he almost got killed by his brother and his army. And he is getting past obstacle after obstacle. And finally, he says, I made it home safely. And he praises God for it. Look in verse 19. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Okay? And so he gets there, he erects an altar, he wants to thank God for God's goodness to him. Now I want to remind you, when he left the promised land, God appeared to him in that vision with the ladder, and Jacob made a vow to God. This is what he said, Genesis 28, 20. If if you, God, will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and if you will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I may come again to this place, then you, the Lord shall be my God. Right? And God has done that for him and far more, and Jacob is keeping his vow that he made 20 years ago, and he builds an altar, El Elohi Israel. God is the God of Israel. What's his name? Israel. The Lord is my God. I belong to him. And I wonder if God has done a work in your life, it was good, would be good then, my friend, to worship him and to thank him and to uh, give him praise. If you've been reconciled, not just to those you've estranged from, but even reconciled to God. We, need, we are to be reconciled to one another, but we are first and foremost to be reconciled to the Lord. So I wonder, is there any reconciliation you need to do today as we close? We just affirmed our covenant. We, we, you just vowed, members of Hamilton Baptist Church, to be slow to take offense and ready to seek reconciliation. Okay. And that might be the person sitting next to you. That might be the person across the room. That might be a family member. You ought to seek that reconciliation in light of the fact that God has reconciled himself to you. 
Did you see that interesting phrase in verse 10 where Jacob says to Esau, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. Now, did Esau look like God? Well, he was red and hairy, so he might have, okay? okay? No, of course not. And what he's saying is, in you accepting me, that's a picture to me that my God has accepted me. Right? God will not condemn me, but embrace me. Your embrace, your hug, your kisses, your weeping, it's like, it's like God to me, what God has done for me. And I think it was Kurt who was praying earlier, listen, Jesus is coming back. He also is going to come riding a horse with an army on his backside. And for some, he's going to judge. Others, he's going to embrace. He will embrace those who are reconciled. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting man's trespasses against them. The truth is God is holy and we're not. We are sinful and, and wicked at times, and that sin separates us from God. But I tell you, despite who you are, despite what you have done, God in his great love seeks to reconcile with us. But it takes two to reconcile. God is willing right now to reconcile with you. Are you willing? In fact, he is so willing, he's the one who will make restitution for your sins. You need to make none with him through the death of his Lord Jesus Christ. You can do so even as I pray. Father, we're thankful for what we have received in Christ. We're thankful for your great grace to us in reconciling us to you. And so may we therefore be reconcilers. Just take the grace which we have and extend it to others. May it overflow with grace, Father, as we seek to be a blessing. I pray for those who have yet to yield their life to Jesus Christ this morning. I pray that uh, they would uh, give themselves to him in faith, um, even as they repent of their sins and are reconciled through Jesus. And we pray that your word be an encouragement to us that we might leave here uh, this morning more faithful to Christ and more in love with him, trusting in him more as we see in Jacob, and therefore living a different life than those that we see in this world. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, our, our time is up, and so I'm going to dismiss us now, but I, I do want to dismiss you, um, uh, and I, I want to let you know, for those of you in 10 minutes, we're coming back for our members meeting, you're going to need a packet. Those are going to be at the door, so when you come back in, grab a packet. There's a couple ballots. We're going to have to vote. You're gonna, everyone's going to need that who's a member of our church, and so uh, we'll see you in 10 minutes from now.